Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Um, so look, we're going to jump into the panel now. We've got uh, about an hour to get through to the mid-morning break. So I might just ask our panel members to jump up on stage. And I believe we may still be one down at this point in time. We, we had... Uh, <clears throat> Steve Faulkner, who will be joining us and I think is still intending to join us, but he had some stuff come up at the latest, the last moment. So um, we are expecting him sometime soon. So thank you all for, for listening to these slightly garbled at, at points um, ta- uh, presentations we had this morning. Uh, obviously, it's a great shame that Peter couldn't be here and, and it's not the perfect scenario, but I'm, I'm Super glad that these guys both had fantastic things to say. Um, I'd also like, again, to thank people like Helen who've actually helped get through that last week and, and put something together for you this morning and replacing Peter all throughout the program. So, um, so the panel as it stands at the moment, Rob, Laura and Tony. Now, I, I will introduce them. I'm not sure whether they need introduction, but I've got all these nice words to say. So I may as well say them. Um, most of you would know Rob through a small company in Melbourne called Firemint. They started off uh, doing mobile games very, very many moons ago. In fact, Rob was a sole contractor back in 1999 when he started a company called NDWare, which then kind of became uh, Firemint over the years as they started publishing their own games and getting credit on games. Um, they've obviously had massive success over the past couple of years, hitting Number, t- uh, number one in 20, company, uh, ten- 20 countries with flight control. They have since backed that up, hitting number one in 22 countries with Spymouse and obviously are owners, creators of the incredible franchise Real Racing, which is one of the most incredible technical uh, achievements on an iOS device. They also, and I think this is kind of particularly telling, are recipients of several Apple Design Awards, which is not only incredibly cool, but kind of speaks to the, the style and nature of and polish of the company. Rob Murray. <laughs> Sitting in the middle, we have Laura Parker. Laura is the uh, associate editor, is it, of GameSpot in Australia. She joined GameSpot in 2008 and is the lead writer for uh, news and covers both local and international content. Um, hey! <laughs> Steve Faulkner, everybody! <laughs> Sorry, if you don't mind, Steve, I was just introducing Laura. <laughs> it's all right. Um, Laura studied journalism at the uh, University of Sydney, and she's written on a, a wide range of topics, everything technology, arts, theatre, games, etc., She's been published in the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, and The Guardian and The Economist, some pretty impressive international publications. In 2009, Laura was nominated for a Walkley Foundation Young 
Young Australian Journalist of the Year for video game writing, which is pretty damn cool. She then won the IT Journalist Award for Best, Best Gaming Journalist in 2010, nominated again the following year. In 2011, she won the, uh, the Journalist of the Year for the 2011 MCV Pacific Awards. Welcome, Laura Parker, everybody. Uh, Anthony Reid is a man who needs no introduction and should be well known to all of you, but he's going to get one anyway. He is the Chief Executive Officer of the Game Developers Association of Australia. Uh, you might not know that Anthony is turning 21 shortly. He doesn't look it. He's in fact, his time in the games industry is turning 21. So he told me a great deal about most of the games downstairs. Uh, he actually also helped market most of the games downstairs and release some of the games downstairs because he has had a previous career in marketing and public relations for the likes of Virgin and Interplay. Uh, since becoming the CEO of the Game Developers Association of Australia, Anthony is now tasked with representing the sector's interests to government, to educational institutions, financial and basically taking care of us all. Thank you, Tony, and welcome. And Steve Faulkner, who is thankfully able to join us, thanks Steve, is the CEO and lead designer at Infinite. Um, Infinite obviously has a, an ex extensive array of games and so does Steve under his belt with 25 years of game development experience. His first game was in 1983, which is kind of scary probably for both me and him. Uh, and since then he's released about 30 titles. He's best known for some of his earlier works like Warlords, which were incredible games of their day. Um, I was horribly addicted to those games as a kid, and when I found out Steve made them, I, I got a little, a little giddy. Um, and obviously has since gone on to uh, redefine genres and, and kind of mash things up in the style of Puzzle Quest, which is one of his more recently well-known works. Um, Puzzle Quest went everywhere. It was one of those titles that... It started off, you know, in, in DS land and PSP land and, and very quickly went everywhere in every platform and, and kept those guys busy for a number of years. Obviously, Infinite joined uh, Firemint a little while ago and have since kind of gone different ways under the EA banner. But now it's great to welcome Steve as essentially an independent again. Welcome, Steve. So we're looking today... And we will be getting some feedback from you guys a little bit later on, but we're looking at the state of play. What are we doing here? What, what excites us? And I think some of the questions that I would like to see answers are, you know, what scares us? What do we like about the industry? What do we not like about it? There's a, I think there's a great deal of, of optimism, and, and certainly the guys earlier today have shared that and have, have shared their passions. But what are we doing as game developers? What are we... As, as gamers as well. What do we want to be doing? What do we want to be seeing more of? What do we secretly hate about the industry that we wish we could change? So we intend for this panel to be, I guess, a, uh, an opening up of many of the issues that we're going to cover over the next couple of days. Um, we might not have all the answers, and I, I don't expect we do, but if we can at least have this discussion, it, it helps frame what the rest of the, the forum might entail. So... I'm going to open up with Laura, which is fitting because she's the most nervous of the bunch. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody's cool. Don't worry about it. She's dying a little over here. We'll be good. Um, 
So look, one of the I think there's there's a number of things that have happened um, in the games industry recently, and I think Nathan kind of put his finger on it in that in the last three months everything has changed. Um, that being said, I think some of the most fascinating things that have happened in the games industry have not necessarily been to do with the games themselves. It's been everything around games, and we're certainly going to cover everything from crowdfunding and financing uh, through to different business models and such that affect us creating games and playing games. But one of the, one of the other areas is media. So I was wondering, Laura, my first question to you is how have you seen the games media change in the last year? Um. Can you hear me? Like if I just talk like this? Yes? Okay. <laughs> um, well, I think, okay. Like this? Yes. <laughs> now I'm not nervous at all. Um, well, <laughs> when I first started at GameSpot in 2008, um, the consumer side of the media was very focused on very formulaic content. So, you know, just strict news, re reviews, previews, kind of very formulaic, no kind of room to move outside of that. And, um, you know, a feature that you might see in 2008 from a consumer side would be like, you know, top 10 boobs in gaming or something like that. Um, so <laughs> it was very kind of formulaic and, and very strict and there wasn't much room for creativity in the media. I think in the last four years, this has really expanded and from the consumer side, we've seen sites like GameSpot and IGN kind of... Um, step up and um, give their editorial uh, team a lot more voice. So we're seeing a lot more opinion pieces and a lot more in-depth features that explore um, games as a cultural medium. And also in around 2009 with the, um, with the start of Kill Screen, um, we've seen kind of a different era of a different kind of publication come through, which is catering to, I guess, a more savvy consumer, more intelligent kind of coverage of games from a cultural perspective. So sites like Polygon, obviously, um, the AV Club's Gamological Society as well. So we're kind of, you know, on the bottom we've got like the industry publications like Gamma Sutra and stuff, and then we've got something in the middle, and then at the top is like the consumer sites, like the big ones like GameSpot and IGN. So um, we've definitely seen a more diverse range of content in media, in games media specifically. And I think that means that people just want to read more interesting stuff. Very good. And do you see, I mean, it seems like GameSpot is a very, very old company. It goes back more than 15 years or so. Yeah. And they've had to respond to that? Or, I mean, are they, are they actively responding to an opportunity in the market or is it just damn, this is what people want, we, we're kind of being forced into this. Well, I think with our consumers particularly, um, what they were demanding was more time with games post-launch. So okay. what we were doing before was just covering sort of previews, um, news, and everything to do with the game before it launched. And kind of after it launched, we would just stop covering it. And what we found was our consumers really wanted to, to kind of spend more time with the game after it launched post-release content and stuff. So we've kind of responded to that and that's what we're doing, a kind of like more in-depth features around games and staying with a game longer after it's been released. And um, with a diversifying audience, we've also seen people, like we're partnering with um, people like YouTube and um, Twitch TV and stuff. Obviously, pro-gaming is really huge now. So, you know, there, there's like different patches of audience like interest that's kind of branched out from just you know what's a game and I like this game and I want to see more of it so so that I guess the the diversity of media is leading or I mean I don't want to put words in your mouth here but one of the issues that we've seen pop up in the last three months is whether the game's audience is killing innovation or supporting innovation 
now it's a it's a really big uh big topic and it doesn't have a single answer but do you want to make a comment on that oh god <laughs> is this being recorded uh game okay well i think i don't think it's i don't think it's the audience that's um really i mean obviously the indie space has taken off in such a huge way and that's where most of the innovation we've seen is coming from and the fact that indie games are so popular now means that audiences are demanding innovation and they're demanding new experience and they're kind of sick of the AAA space where it's just sequels, sequels, sequels. So I think that's that's the audience driving innovation. Um, whether or not it's playing itself out in the AAA space is not really to do with the audience but more to do with the publishers and the business models and the fact that they still need to make money and they still want to make money. So for big publishers, taking risks is um, is not something they're, you know, they're want to do okay yeah. tony did you want to comment on that i don't want to but i can <laughs> um the I, I i do agree with you but if you look at uh, what we saw at e3 this year um i mean yeah the indie space is growing and it's growing exponentially and it's brilliant we are seeing all that innovation but have one look at what we saw coming out of e3 it is unfortunately still the publishers that drive the market and drive opinion and you know and, and effectively drive retail um and everything is still sequels it is still and it, it's getting it's getting slightly worse but at the same time we're not seeing them um adapt that innovation and until such time as as they do and get it out to that mass market um i think e3 and and that that innovation that we're seeing at an indie level we're not going to see it at, at the broader level just yet i would disagree just sorry <laughs> just a little bit um because we saw a couple of, I, I know like it was mostly sequels, sequels, sequels at E3 this year, but we saw a couple of really interesting new IP from, from the, the big publishers like Beyond and The Last of Us and, and Watch Dogs from Ubisoft. I thought all those were great examples of, of new IP that are, you know, and they're big AAA titles. So, you know, it is happening. It's just slowly happening. It's happening from the studios that, that tend to do it. The rest of them don't. I mean, Beyond, we've seen yeah. the, the, the previous iteration of Beyond. Um, Watch Dogs, absolutely. I mean, just amazing. Um, the Last of Us, it, it's an extension, really, of Uncharted, isn't it? Um, and it looks stunning, it looks innovative, <laughs> but it's the, it's the same. It, it's appealing to that the market that's already been established, um, and it's growing them. It's growing, it's growing their awareness. It's growing their, their awareness of innovation. Um, but if you look at Call of Duty and, and <laughs> all the rest of them, it's 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 the same. Does that Sorry. not take? <laughs> You're allowed to be controversial. It's fine. I'm not. I'm not being controversial. It's just a, an opinion of, of what I think I saw come out of E3 and, and the, yeah. yeah I, okay. I got a little observation there myself, actually. And as someone who's worked on a, a truckload, a metric shitload of sequels, um, <laughs> it's more than an imperial shitload of sequels. It's a metric shitload. Uh, people demand innovation. They do. They demand you to innovate till your product is exactly the same as the last thing they enjoyed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That seems exactly. like a contradiction, and, and, and it kind of is. That they want you to. They want something new. They want to experience that kind of that thrill they got when they got your game last time. But they don't want the experience to change too much. So there's kind of a. They'll get their innovation, but they really need to get the innovation through a new product. You can't innovate on an old product. And uh, I think there's room there for kind of the innovative people, which is sort of for the indies, as you said. And there's room there for the sequels, and, and both have got to run at the same time. You can't have just one or the other. Well, look, this is kind of jumping a little bit in the future, but uh, Steve, I know you're interested in this space. You're talking about innovation and, and sequels driving that innovation, but what happens when you've got something like a World of Tanks, a League of Legends, a game that exists and will exist over numerous years and is essentially supposed to, you know, it's supposed to provide innovation, but I guess on a weekly basis or, you know, but the core remains the same. 
Uh, yeah, and League of Legends, World of Tanks are great examples of games that you know they don't want to change the genre. They, you know, that hasn't progressed since Dota. The um, uh, the MOBA genre is is still three lanes, five players a side, push. And League of Legends gave it a try with Dominion. Um, less than ten percent of people currently play Dominion. Uh, a number I got from them probably shouldn't have told everyone. But <laughs> no, it, it might actually be more than that. I'm, I'm not one hundred percent sure, but it's a small number. So people want the old gameplay, but they want that small amount of innovation. I think that's what they really enjoy. The, the small amount of innovation on the thing they're already invested in and that they like. I think, uh, if I can just yeah. add, it's a bit like um, the problems with economics. You can't just assume the consumer is going to be rational and, you know, just because they can want this and want that at the same time. Um, they can want things that cannot possibly be given to them as well. And, mm. uh, you know, I think publishers are driven by the consumer still. I mean, they... But there's... There's intermediaries. I mean, there's retail. The publishers are probably blame retail um, for for being, you know, the ones that are the problem. And then retail would say, but that's what the consumers. Everyone, buy. It's, a, it's just a circle. <laughs> Everyone blames everybody. <laughs> exactly. So, so Rob, looking at at your business, then, I mean, you've you're one of the few that has one a, a massive install base. So a lot of consumers to get in contact with. From the the day dot your releases on iOS have been consumer focused that you've been building that audience base and you're renowned for having you know fantastic support and and you know attention to those users how much does that play in into what you're going to develop next you mean how much does the existing consumer base yeah i mean how much do you take that audience into consideration with what you said is you know they're a mm -hmm. little bit behind they're you know they're undecided they're irrational <laughs> well uh, yeah the audience i, I always um, always look at the consumer um, in everything we're doing. Um, it's yeah, it's it's at the heart of it. Like you can't you can't um, necessarily build a creative process around analysing the consumer. So you've got your creative process and that's separate. But then getting things kind of greenlit right. is about looking at um, you know does this does this meet what I think the consumers want? But it's really hard because um, when you're going mass market and trying to, you know, always trying to get a number one, and I, I love the idea of the mass market, um, but that's just, it's not just one big, it's not one person, it's zillions of uh, individuals, and yeah. um, you're just making all these assumptions from things you learn, you tend to, tend to think about um, consumers as the aggregate, and you make up these it's just because it's easier to think this way is you, you think, well, consumers are like this or they think that. and um, So I think about it a great deal, but I just don't, don't think I'm getting very right. far with, with understanding them. Yeah. So you, but you support the, the separation of the creative side of games and that, that core concept from consumers? Yeah, that's just a yeah. practical thing. Yeah. It's, it's hard to... Uh, it's hard to... Um, you know, going, looking at consumers and then... Um, and then creating from that is an analytical process, not a creative one. The creative process is something different that goes forward and this goes yeah. backwards. And so somewhere they've got to meet. Um, and that's just something I'm learning. It's yeah. not like I haven't tried <laughs> to sort of analyse backwards and, and produce a game without being creative. That would be wonderful, but yeah, it just doesn't work. It would certainly be interesting. <laughs> um, so look, I wanted to touch on, on the business models of you know, what some of you guys are doing in the space. Um, 
they haven't yet settled down for mobile and social, but I get the feeling that, you know, after GDC this year, it's, it's kind of a known space. People are jumping in or they're not jumping in. It's not that kind of wild west that it once was. So I guess I wanted to ask you, Rob, what, what current trends in business models that are, I guess, supporting game development studios that, that trouble you as, as a business owner, as, as somebody who employs over 50 people? Yeah, well, would you um, classify free as part of that? Yeah, certainly. Social. I mean, that's definitely, um, yeah, definitely taken, taken over now, and it's it's where where everyone's making the big wins. Uh, that's, you know, although it, it has, it has said it's, um, you know, everyone knows it's there. It's no longer. It's just a fact, not a, not so much a, a possibility. Uh, we're still catching up with it. The entire engine, uh, the entire games industry is catching up with it, and. Um, you know, I really, really hope it won't all be Farmville clones that <laughs> get to um, to number one. I think yeah. I think there's a lot of innovation to be applied there, and it's not going to come from Zinger. Um, <laughs> uh, it'll come from from Indies. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, looking beyond that and business models, I th- uh, I don't I don't see uh, anything quite so dramatic as free. Okay. Uh, coming, but I think we. I think what we're going to see is different forms of free. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe sponsorship makes a uh, sponsorship and advertising makes a rise again. I mean, I, I'm really interested personally in seeing quality advertising. You know, meaning like not just sort of. Um, I mean, there's there's games advertising to other games is is probably the biggest biggest amount of advertising, which is really just sort of shifting the audience all around there. But I, you know, I'd like to see. Why wouldn't you advertise a car or um, or consumer products and that uh, in these games instead of dating sites and and um, scams and and that sort of thing? I want to see TV quality um, advertising, which will create that'll create a new sort of free. Yeah. And um, I think free has a long way to run. At the moment, um, the Zinger games aren't uh, you know free. You can play them for a while for free, but you have to then pay and. Um, to, to sort of move forward faster or to, to really win. Yeah. Free's got a long, long way to run because consumer, I think consumers will just keep saying, well, that's, that's ridiculous. I don't want to have to pay for anything. Yeah. And then you, so then you might get to sponsorship and advertising and then they'll say, oh, why should I have to see that? I, you know, and as long as someone is offering up something that's even freer. Um, <laughs> so is that a real issue? I mean, we've, everybody's moving towards this, but is... Is, do you think the, this model might erode the industry to a point where nothing's really viable? Are you concerned by that? Uh, I think what, yeah, what scares me is um, that it's getting harder and harder to say something is viable up front. Yeah. You know, the industry is viable, but if, if, all, if you've got um, 100,000, well, that's probably an understatement, 500, <laughs> 200,000 developers around the world, Competing and um, you know, and only one ever hits, and act, and it makes t- tons of money. But then they can't; they have no assurance that their next one will hit. Yeah. They have no sense. Then it um, that really um, makes it difficult to run a business and to, to sort of keep people together. And maybe that that will sort of balance out to become something, but it could change the industry significantly if you can't run a business and you can't employ people full-time and in you which comes to a little bit to where we 
are to some degree where there's a lot of indies and there's yeah. a lot of little sweat equity um, projects going on and and um, you know maybe we get more of a contractor based sort of film style thing. It's good to know that you're facing the same problems at a 50 person studio level that indies are facing. Yeah, it's just same, scary, same uncertainty. <laughs> so, Steve, flipping that over and, and ignoring the business side for a sec, take these business models. How does that affect you as a creative? I mean, you're in this world. You've got these business models for your next project, whatever that might be. How does it affect? Well, I, I agree with Rob. Free to play is it's just a huge playing field. There's so many different types of free to play. And what's scary as a creative is that uh, is the way some of the free to plays treat their players. Now, I. I I liken it to kind of strip mining, uh, strip mining of your user base. Um, how many people here have played? Just put up your hand if you've played a game ending in Ville. <laughs> Quite a few hands going up. How many of you are really excited about playing another game ending in Ville? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And everyone I talk to that's played a Ville game, um, usually a Zynga game, or one of those games based on that model that Zynga has made popular, they never walk away from the game thinking, wow, that was an awesome game, I really want to play another one. They've been mined. They've basically been put into the system and the game at some point gates them and says, give me your money or give me your friends list or get out. And that's, uh, that's not pleasant. And, and you might give money and after you've given the money, they say, no, give me more money or some more friends. And they keep doing that through gates. And that just uh, that drives people away. I mean, as gamers, we develop pretty good bullshit detectors, really, cause, because we're used to kind of taking stuff interactively. And... Uh, it turns the, turns the people that call themselves gamers off because they spot what's going on straight away. It turns the casuals off because they just get fed up with playing money and getting on the endless treadmill. And look, a few of them keep playing and there's, there's what we call whales out there, the people who spend the thousands of dollars on a game and, and they kind of keep it running. But it really scares me as, a, as an indie that uh, by the time I get my game out, there's going to be less, of, less people to play that game because... Zynga scared them all the way. <laughs> What's um, if I can add something along that line? It's because it's really interesting. The um, uh, it's it's scary also to me how um, how readily consumers will trade away service and um, quality of relationship with developer or whoever's providing them with goods uh, for price. And you can see airlines. You can see it happening in airlines and that, and like examples like Ryanair and uh, and and that 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 just do some tor seemingly torturous stuff and it's a very poor experience but hey it's ten dollars you know or you know fifty dollars cheaper to to travel from here to there so uh, you know it's clear in the mass market price sensitive there is a real risk um that price sensitivity is um will you know sustain some pretty nasty consumer publisher relationships that we really don't want to be involved in as much you know so it's fair to say that the in terms of that relationship between the consumer and the, and the brand, whatever that brand may be, publishers probably haven't come out on top in the past year. There's, there's been a bit of flack. I mean, even Bioware's copped it. But um, Tony, maybe do you want to do you want to comment on where publishers are at in 2012? The, were there relevance? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, don't talk about Bioware. Don't talk about Bioware. Um, they, they are. I mean, publishers are still the drivers of our industry they they drive the market they um they're the ones who who publicize what we do they're the ones that the media focus on for the most part i mean but 99 percent of, of media time is committed to published games as opposed to the indie space um they explore and they have the money to explore um they copy uh, i won't 
name names, but they, they, they copy and they improve because they have the money to copy and improve. Um, that said, th it's a business and it will remain a business forever. It's called show business, right? It's, it's not show hobby farm. Um, and, and as a result of that, every publishing decision is about what the return is going to be and that return goes into the reinvestment of a new, hopefully innovative um, development. So the publishers aren't going anywhere and I think my great fear right now and this comes out of, in fact, that, that whole freemium discussion, uh, if you look at the new PricewaterhouseCoopers Consumer Behaviour Reports, consumers are already getting sick of being hit for money constantly. Um, you know, Zynga is obviously probably the, the worst transgressor. EA has a lot to answer for as well. Um, and consumers basically now say, you know, sod the free, we're happy to pay our 20 bucks for a, a decent iPad game, just let us play the whole game. Um, and, and so I think consumers actually might force a change with the, with the publishers, and publishers go back to a model that they are very, very familiar with. Here's our product, here's our, um, you know, give us the cash. So, and the thing that, that, that worries me is consumers do tend to revert to type. So what will happen over time, especially in, as markets get oversaturated, and we're already seeing that in the iOS space, um, you know, Google is trying to take control a bit more of the, uh, of the Android space, the Google um, Play space, is the publishers will move in with brands. And when you're, when you're inundated with product, unless you already have an existing entertainment brand, let's say like Infinite and Fireman do, the consumers will trust, inherently trust what it is you're doing and they'll, they'll be prepared to invest in you. If you don't have that brand and it's you know, Monopoly versus some really cool risk-esque game that you've created, consumers are likely going to go for Monopoly because it's what they understand, it's what they know, and there's that confidence in, in that, um, in that uh, license. And that's what worries me. It worries me that the, the markets that we're seeing the indies thrive in and where we're seeing encouraged innovation, the, the publishers will move in and they'll gazump that and the indies will have to look constantly for where the next technological opportunity is going to be and the publishers will follow with the same sort of model. And you see the publishers having an increased or a, a, a dominant play in uh, digital over the next couple of years? Absolutely, they'll drive it. Um, no question. We, we obviously don't know what's going on with the new console platforms, but it's safe to assume there's going to be a massive um, digital focus, um, you know, and with other new technologies coming along as well. And uh, you know, I'm assuming we'll talk about that in a, in a little while. But, um, but they'll be the ones who, who found the market, that create the marketplaces. You know, if you look at, to some extent, if you look at, at PSN and, um, and XBLA, a lot of the, the key, the, the initial key titles were driven by publishers, a lot of good indie stuff, but it's once the publishers came on board and started driving that, you know, Journey or Flower or, or even Flow before that, those were Sony games. They were created by that game company, absolutely, but they were Sony games. They were funded by Sony. They had an entire Sony production crew behind them to ensure that they were at a level of quality and it promoted that service. And that's what we'll see. Um, publishers will move consumers into the digital space. They'll, they'll make consumers comfortable with digital. And once they've done that, which is brilliant, because once they've done that, all the indies can go, right, well, here's an entirely new market that's open to us that's happy to put their credit card you know, on, the, on the PlayStation network. I, I, that was probably the worst example I could have used. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, they, they will be happy to, to fork out their, their money because the big boys said it's okay. Um, and that's where new opportunities exist for ind independent developers. So, leading to that, the discussion around consoles, it's kind of inevitable that we'll see the next gen. Laura, I would imagine from, from the audience you deal with, there's a lot of excitement around it? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, well, what what I've noticed is that um, so towards the end of console cycle, as it's like you know consumers get console fatigue. So what we've seen is 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 they don't really you know consumers aren't buying as many games on consoles anymore. They've kind of gone back to PC because we've this is the longest console cycle we've ever had, and so they're really kind of just you know they've just got just migrated back to PC. And and you know we've heard rumors about the next gen consoles, but um, but nothing obviously Wii U's coming out, but nothing um, stable from either Sony or Microsoft. So um, there's also I think with consumers um, there's like um, like they're starting to have a, a, a tolerance, like a low tolerance for low quality games. Yeah. So um, you know, you know, publishers, big AAA publishers, are starting like they're having to put out increasingly high quality games. We've seen that with um, with Metacritic scores, right? So um, you know, two three years ago, um, people would settle. You know, would go out and go, oh, this is a seven point five game. It's good enough. I'm going to buy it. Now they're like, they won't touch anything below a nine. So it's, um, you know, it, publishers have kind of had to step up and, and deliver kind of better quality games. So I think that raises an interesting question for us as, as Australians, as Victorians. How much do we actually care or, you know, are we influenced by these next generation of consoles? Tony? Oh, a lot less than, um, than we were in the past. I mean, our market has shifted substantially since, um, since the, the GFC. And, and, you know, the, the unfortunate thing for our, for our industry was when the GFC hit, digital distribution emerged. So we had one an economic crisis and then a crisis of, of market. Um, so it was a double, it was a double whammy for us. Um, we do, I mean, we do watch what the publishers are doing, absolutely, because like I said before, they, they do create opportunity. But right now, I think Australia is getting back to its roots a lot more than, than it has been in the past. You know, we, we came from a very creative place. You know, Steve was, was one of the original founders of this industry. Um, you know, and, and, and Rob really built on, on what you know, Steve and, and a, a lot of other people created. But it was creativity that drove it. It wasn't about just taking somebody else's IP, regurgitating something else and, and pushing it out to market. So we're less inclined to, to follow the publisher model now, which is, which is really a good position to be in. Um, our industry has actually doubled in size. It's now almost triple in size, actually, um, since 2010, which uh, if Patch Colin is in the audience... Uh, told me that when I said I thought the industry would, would recover by the end of 2010, he said I was being a bit premature. So, Patch, no man likes to be told that he's premature. <laughs> not good. But it's happened. Um, the Australian industry has recovered, and it's recovered on the back of new, creative, really innovative um, properties. Um, you know, we've seen that, obviously, out of Queensland. There's a lot more coming out of Victoria now. Queensland's had a bit of a head start, you know, with the pandemic being the first to go. Um, and and we're, not, we're not following that, that console AAA trend at all. It's, it's really about what can we do? Let's just create something. And, and, you know, Dan talked about it earlier. It's just sit down and iterate and play, and you, we come up with these really cool ideas. And that's actually what's driving the Australian industry right now. It's, it's, not, it's not console development at all. So as, as consumers, we, you know, we will look forward to that. But as developers, wiping the slate clean, don't care about next gen, that's, that's exciting. But I, I kind of agree oh. with you there. I, I wouldn't say don't care about next gen. <laughs> no, but it, 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 yes, I take your point. It doesn't, you? have, doesn't have that same relevance to um, us. Well, actually it does. Uh, it, it absolutely does, to be honest, uh, for, for a number of reasons. 
the first is the saturation of the, the current um, mobile and tablet market, and, and that's a, a real concern. The second is we're learning a lot right now as we develop for these, for these digital platforms. And it, it's a natural progression that you go from iOS, Android, into maybe a bit of PSN, XBLA, and the next iterations of what that's going to be. So we've actually got a, a unique opportunity to learn a lot about that digital marketplace now and prepare for the new consoles. I think to try and compete realistically on either the PlayStation Network or, or XBLA or, or um, the, the Wii, WiiWare thing um, would be daft. I think we can prepare for what the future holds because that's where the market is going to be. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the I think the next generation consoles is actually really important to us. Okay, so then, kind of taking that as a, you know, we want to we want to be in digital, and obviously that's where the growth is. Is it necessarily within that kind of console space, or are there are there? And I guess this is directed to you, Rob. Are there other opportunities around potentially what Apple are doing with Apple TV or, or Google or OnLive or Gaikai, those kind of services that maybe might be a better step for us? as opposed to, you know, I mean, everybody wants to be in that console space. It's going to be incredibly diff difficult. Where are the opportunities for us? Yeah, well, um, TV is obviously mm -hmm. something I'm thinking about. Because um, if you think about it, instead of thinking about console, just think about lounge room, desktop, and, you know, just the screens that you interact with. Um, you know, I like to make, um, well, as any kind of startup or smaller company, uh, and we're not exactly that now, but... You know, I would like to try and find, even if it's the second winner, yeah. I'd make a bet on that rather than try and compete with the biggest publishers, say, in the console space. And I see, you know, there's always that potential that um, uh, TV technology, whether it's a, some, who knows, you know, um, improvements to, to Apple TV or it's um, Google Android TVs or it's something uh, something else, a, a whole in one all-in-one product. Um, there's um you know there's a potential that that is works better than console uh you know i don't know if that's going to happen but we're um we're certainly going to support um support the big screen yeah as well and you look at the power now in um in ipad uh, the new ipad and and the new tablets and stuff it's um it's pretty in incredible and that'll keep I, I believe that'll keep the power in your mobile and your ipad will 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 grow faster still, uh, you know. It'll, it'll be growing at a, a faster exponential rate than console power, because uh, and 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 um, even desktop power, because the markets just aren't as important. There's nothing more important to the um, technological economy than uh, than mobile, because we're talking about six billion devices, not one billion yeah. uh, or something. So that's where all the investment will go. That's where all the technology will go, and mobile gets to borrow technology from um, desktop and console uh, so it, it also it gets another boost beyond just Moore's law uh, it doesn't ha necessarily have to innovate on every angle it just has to innovate on um, on battery power and um, thermal uh, issues so I, I believe that uh, that there's a, a long way to run for for mobile technology um, TV output is is one thing that's um, that I think is really big and we've we're better we're, you know, we're better big on it with real racing too, you, which you can see uh, down there. Which uh, you know, we're the first to market to show that you could go 1080p out from a from an iPad. So that's some, um, yeah. Uh, TV's one thing, but um, if you look a bit further on, um, it might be closer than we think. There might be um, like I saw Google demonstrating some um, some goggles. I think 
at some point someone's going to innovate with something that uh, breaks down what I call the immersion gap between um, mobile slash tablet and console because that's the only gap, as I see, that's really left. I don't think um, having an extra, uh, you know, some extra power is necessarily going to make as much difference to the consumer as just size of the screen, input um, methods, and things like um, VR goggles, right? They could be the headset um, that made, um, made the Walkman and the iPod um, the thing for music. No one bothers with their hi-fi anymore. They just go and plonk their their iPhone down. So um, that's a scenario I've imagined for quite some years and the trend is still going that way. I, I think mo- mobile and and iPads are, and um, tablets are uh, growing in power much faster than uh, you imagine. So there's, yeah, TV, uh, of course, third screen on, yep. on, um, on those devices. Okay. So a mobile immersion or, or having those, those highly personal... Uh, having that highly personal device that forms this greater level of immersion. Yeah, it's yeah. Um, everything that... Imagine having everything that console has, um, but uh, combined with everything mobile has. Tony, do you want to pitch in there? I know you've got some thoughts on apps and TV and where that's headed. Yeah, I'm absolutely thrilled by the idea of smart TVs of the future. Uh, I just think the opportunities there are, are virtually limitless. Imagine a TV with the same processing power as, as the mobile devices or even the consoles um, that, are inter, that are camera enabled, obviously internet enabled, and what you could do with those. I mean, you've got a connect built into your TV, uh, an advanced version of the connect built into your TV. Um, you've got input devices. You can stream your games as you see fit. You can turn your lounge room back into what it was you know, in, in the 50s and 60s. It's everybody sitting around a board game. doesn't matter where in the world your friends are or your family. Um, you're now sitting around a device that's accessible it's it's no longer a technological barrier it's a technological enabler and i really lo- i love that idea i mean it's um i have family all over the world and and i would love to have gotten my mum into games but you know wow she's, she's not really going to play that um but you know could we play a game of backgammon on the tv while she sits in johannesburg right now absolutely and it wouldn't matter you know if i've got an aunt in salt lake city and and, and the like it's um you know, that's what the tv will do so you'll have these really advanced core experiences but at the same time, you'll have effectively a family unit sitting around what was the thing that was going to destroy society at one point, was this television. Um, and I love that. I think, I th- honestly, I think the smart TV space is, where, is one of the areas we really, really should be focusing on going forward. And how does that affect you, Steve? Uh, kind of generically speaking, that's, um, I, I kind of lump all that stuff into platform changes. And you know, over, my, over my short period in the games industry, I've, um, I think I counted up a couple of months back and I've seen 33 platform changes. And, you know, back in the 90s, a platform change was, hey, they've invented sound cards, now we've got to put sound into our games. Um, <laughs> that, I would pass those things as kind of, uh, oh, well, look, we've got 256 colours, oh, my God, we've got to draw our images with more colours in them. And as the console era kind of grew, that, that would, you would jump from, say, you know, um, one Sega system to the next Sega system or one Nintendo system to the next Nintendo system or a new generation of graphics cards will come out and you'd have to push 100,000 polygons per frame instead of 50,000 polygons per frame. Each one of those things is kind of a, a platform change and, and driven by technology. Uh, as, the, as the software dude on the end, we don't get to choose what happens there. We kind of, in a way, get to react to how we're going to work with it, like when two screens came out on the, with the DS. You know, what can we do creatively to make uh, awesome things with two screens now? 
So, yeah, 33 of those things, and to start with, they were kind of scary. You'd think, oh, no, what, how am I going to get 256 colours? I'm going to have to employ an extra artist. You know, that, that kind of stuff was... was no artists know how to use 256 colours. <laughs> no one has like, a clue about that stuff. Where am I going to find a sound guy you know, when, when they added sound to games? Um, they're kind of scary, but after a while, you begin to realise that every time there's one of these little platform shifts, that uh, it's a fantastic opportunity to go out as that platform shifts and have a kind of leading product on it. And obviously, we would love to have had a leading product on all 33 platform shifts. But uh, yeah, we've got a couple, and I think that's, that's the best you can do is kind of pick where you think they're going to shift, try to have a product out that plays well on that platform at the time. And uh, so really exciting for independents like myself to see the shift to TVs because that's a new platform shift. That's, that's People are going to change the way they play. There'd be more things they can do. They can play in the cloud. There's kind of social features we can add in. We can take that whole bucket of stuff, make something cool out of it, and, and hopefully be one of the first games out with a new model or a new, new paradigm to a gameplay and, uh, and give a lot of people a lot of enjoyment with it. It could create an audience shift as well, mm. is what you've got to think about, mm. because this is a case where everyone has a TV. So you don't have to have your gamer friends. You can have your real friends, potentially. That's where you come to the back <laughs> Um yeah, um, two mutually exclusive. Yeah, they don't. Have, <laughs> they don't have to be, but you know, like um, there's, you know, all your fa- if uh, it makes things like Facebook that sort of try and capture yeah. sort of real social connections more, um, more relevant, and um, obviously mass market as well. Yeah. So I wanted to get back to something that Nathan mentioned before, which is that he sees, and I, I kind of agree with him here, that the next box product, the next AAA, the next thing that really shakes up the industry might be from a, a team of, I think he said 10, 12, 14 people. Do you guys share that view? Oh, yeah. ab- absolutely. Look at, yeah. look at Bastion came out yeah. last year. Really small team. Yeah. Fantastically polished product. Yeah. I think there's, there's examples of it happening already. So all someone's got to do is change something, there's something new in there. and it, I, I think it's more likely to be from a small team than a large team, actually. Well, a small uh, team can do anything a big team exactly. can do given enough time. So just if you're innovative and, and uh, if you can look forward enough or take a risk on what's going to happen in two years, yeah. uh, three years, then you could do amazing things. So we've given an unlimited budget and the ability to either start a new company or go out and do that project that you always wanted to do. What do you think is the right, the right team size? What, what would be your kind of perfect storm of game development at this point in time? Team, technology, budget? I... I I actually like a limited budget. Mm. Um, I think limited budget makes you a little bit hungry, makes you, uh, gives you a deadline, makes you solve things creatively, makes you realise that you, know, you don't have to... Uh, you, you can use people's imagination, the, the player's imagination, to improve the gameplay. You don't need to hand them everything and show them everything. Yeah. And uh, I, I just think that, um, that limited budget is great. With a team size of... You know, Sometimes it's, well, I, I wish I could do everything myself, but the, almost the smaller the team, the better. A couple of programmers and an artist could produce something really fantastic. Uh, I, I would say team size of three, give a group of people a couple of years and enough budget enough budget to just you know, buy pizza and beer and, uh, and, and, and the right team could produce something really fantastic. Is it easier to have a, a coherent vision when you've got like a smaller team as opposed to like a team of 100 and everybody's thinking different things and there for different reasons? Absolutely. <laughs> it's just so hard to communicate vision down to people. Some people are really great at this. I, I wish I was, you know, he's not here today, Peter Molyneux. Obviously, he's a guy who communicates vision down to his people really well. Um, 
I wish I had that skill. I found over the years that I function better in very small groups because it's uh, that day-to-day kind of exchanging of ideas with a small group. You don't get so many people coming, hey, we could do this, this would be awesome, and then they'll, they'll focus on it and argue about it for ages and you end up diluting your vision. We implemented a thing called a... Um, uh, we had a name for it, the name's completely escaped me, but we would write our initial design document. We would go back after six months of development, about every three months after that, and we would just revisit whether we'd lost focus on the project. And that used to really, really help because we'd find over three to six months with teams of you know, 15 people and up, we would just diverge from where we meant to go and things would go off track. Rob, did you want to pitch in on the Yeah, I would, I would go for the small as, um, <laughs> as necessary, and I have the, I would... My um, my dream team to get something done would start off with just you know one or two and it, and it'd go through a phase. You'd finish something of the game, and then you'd expand the team and start it again, and then right. you finish that game and you expand the team and start it again. So that's um, given a significant time and significant budget, you could end up with something really triple A, but it's got a soul, uh, you know, and a real something innovative about it because it started small enough. But yeah, smaller smaller team as you can. Um, you can manage really the um, the problem. The real key commodity is time, because you're follow, usually following trends, and what you think is a great game here might not be in a, a year or so, and that's why it's so expensive. Time is really yeah. difficult, and when you've got a, a studio like ours, um, you've got to keep people busy as well. So you've actually got to, you know, you've got to really com- sort of get big teams onto things fairly um, quickly, and that's an advantage. You know, some indies, uh, some lucky indies out there, maybe with, um, you know, who don't need the money immediately, could get the ideal scenario where you just start small and build from there. Start small, work out. Very nice. All right. Well, look, that's about all the questions that I've got, but I'd like to throw it open to the audience. We've got about ten minutes or so, and we should have a few roving mics around. I have a question. Is there yes. another mic up there? <laughs> Yahoo! I can't even see. And someone to bring it down. Awesome. All right, oh, so I'm here. Got a question down here. Oh. Thank you. Um, Pedro, I uh, just wanted to ask, is there enough support from the government in terms of tax breaks, incentives, funding, in compared to our international counterparts for the Australian industry? Because <laughs> I don't see it. <laughs> when you look at Montreal and no. uh, in Canada, yeah, the they get no. a lot of support, but when they I do. see here in Australia... We're not being supported, or the youth is not being supported the way the international counterparts are. Yeah. Um, the short answer is no. We, we do not have the same tax relief package as that. That said, I've been doing a lot of work in Canberra. The, the federal government is very, very receptive to what we do. Um, I've met with Minister Crean. I'm talking to the Prime Minister's office. They are all very, very aware of what it is we do and why this industry needs to grow. Uh, we should see the release of the National Cultural Policy Review hopefully in the next couple of weeks. They, they cannot give... And like the Convergence Review, it encourages um, or it should encourage a, the, the implementation of a tax relief system. Um, just so, so to be clear on what tax relief actually is, this is not a handover of money. Tax relief programs are designed to encourage investment in the industry, and it's the one thing the Australian industry has lacked. I and mean, we, We've never had investment. So a tax relief program is, is there purely to help the industry grow. It won't save the industry. Uh, it can't do that. It's not what it's for. It is there to encourage people to invest in your ideas and in your creations. Um, so it's, it's an ongoing process. There may be a result this year. There may not. It's government. You know, I, they're, being, they're being exceptionally supportive. I mean, the Prime Minister's office is, is very supportive. 
um, through to, to Minister Crean's office, to Minister Conroy's office, and to you know, Minister Con uh, Conway's office in, in innovation. They are all absolutely on board with what we're trying to do. So they, they all get it. The, the roadblock <laughs> is Jane Carter here? Okay. Is, oh, yeah, she is. Okay, so the, there's a member of the federal government in the building. Um, <laughs> the, the, delicately, the roadblock is Treasury, um, getting Treasury out of this headspace of we have to deliver a surplus and thus we won't spend any money. Um, if we can get them understanding more about what, it is, what the economic return of what we do is, um, hopefully it'll, it'll ease that. I mean, that, that really is the bottleneck in the grand scheme of things. It's the Department of Treasury. Everyone else has been in exceptional to, to deal with. Like that, like that, Jane? Here you go. Here. Uh, my question, or rather, I guess for the whole panel, but mainly a point that Tony uh, brought up was the PricewaterhouseCoopers report that consumers are getting fed up with continually feeding money into products. Uh, my question, or I guess the thing I'm putting forward is, how do you think that will eventuate with the potential collision with uh, developers slash almost publishers, say Capcom, who are putting more and more on uh, paid con uh, downloadable content on disc. So you purchase the game and then you pay more money to access content that's in the game already. For example, in Street Fighter 4, a lot of the extra costumes are actually on disc. Um, and people were starting to get a little bit annoyed with that. So how do you feel this will, if this trend continues, will there be a sort of, uh, or even an, at, at some point, consumer complaints to do with this potential problem? The designers want to take that, or do you want to? Uh, yeah, I, yeah. yeah when, we, when we sign up a contract for a game, we quite often uh, we sign up some additional content as part of that contract. And so we know there's going to be some DLC with the game, and we, uh, we're creating it before we finish the game, and it's there. And I think it, it's just... It's an unfortunate way the end user, the game player, gets to see is that uh, that's been shipped with the game to save them a download and to make sure it's all there and sometimes because it's just easier having it in the file system to start with and being unlocked. But it was, it was what was originally intended and uh, it just kind of leaves a bit of a bad taste in the user's mouth because it's like, hey, I bought this, it's on the disc, why can't I use it? But it was, um, you know, the, the intention's not been to screw the player over, it's been no different than releasing the DLC online for download it's just been uh, a more convenient and, and effective way of releasing it, I think. It's, it's unfortunate, though, the way the user sees it. Um, hi. Uh, there was a lot of talk from the panel about games as a technology industry, um, and that, yeah, you all know who I am, uh, <laughs> and about that being the driving force. I was really interested in the panel's comments about games shifting into a creative industry that was perhaps more diverse than the, the kind of the indie publisher studio Discussion, like so closer to something like film or TV or music as a creative industry. Go on, Tony. Paul, Paul and I go way back. <laughs> um, I don't, actually don't think that was the, um, the the fundamental discussion in the panel. And I think if um, if we look at it, it's more about the use of technology to drive creativity um, as opposed to just really focusing on on, on being a, a creative medium. I mean, I, I, you and I go way way back. And uh, it'd probably be good to get um, to Rob Portosius. I um, I think we all view it anyway as a creative industry. I think I think that's where we place the games industry. It is what we do. It, it's really about the forms we have available to us to explore that creativity and to drive that creativity. And so we're, we're really 
um, a lot of the time the, the problems are more of um, the problems we face are more marketing than than on the creative side I think and that's why we're talking about it all the time when we're talking about technology we're seeing it really as a marketing opportunity in the sense that he's a well he's a chance to break out and to you know to produce a product early that's got some demand there because it satisfies that tech um, that technology or the, you know the, the consumers interested in that technology so um, still um, the, the industry still being is being driven largely by technology and, and I guess until we're um, I'm not sure what will change that I guess other alternative um, uh, more cost-effective forms of, of marketing or, or more effective forms of marketing that overwhelm um, the natural effect that you can get from technology technological change uh, is what will probably um, stop us using technology as a marketing tool do you think the if I can jump in for a sec do you think the industry views technology as that primary marketing tool is there a, is there a case to be made that in the current day with digital being the way that it is in these kind of constant platforms um, that maybe we should look at you know like sword and sorcerer is a good example of um, something like um, style and creativity being the marketing angle journey was exactly the same there's a lot more of these games coming through and, and having that impact less for the techno technological reasons and more from the creative reasons yeah you know, I mean that's that's wonderful obviously when something like that can um, yeah can break into the can um, break into the market uh, it's just uh, maybe that's the maybe that's the we're starting to see the change. Yeah. Um, that it's more effective to have fantastic, um, you know, fantastic visual um, style uh, than uh, than it is to um, to sort of match up to to technology. But still, the you know, still technology is going to be strong for a while because the consumer buys the platform, yeah. and as we go to mass market, the consumer cares more about their platform than they care about their game, and so you tend to. You, s you still get a lot of strength out of following the platform, but yep. it's yeah, it's wonderful to see stuff like that 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 demonstrates it otherwise. But then, really, the the marketing there is, you know, I I see it, um, and people could correct would probably have different opinions on this, but I think it's that that just that single visual image for sword and sorcery yep. that is the um, marketing tool, and, and it's much more wonderful than that. But um, you know, that's um. Great, um, great visuals has always been a fantastic marketing. I see, see all of art as, as kind of selling games more than necessarily making the game. Yeah. Can I add yeah. one more thing? I think Paul actually raises a really good point uh, in the, the way the industry is perceived. Um, and it is a, a mind shift we have to have. And, you know, Rob's right on technology being, being the, 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 the seller. Um, you know, ultimately, games will become the cultural protectors or the protectors of our culture it's it's a um it's a mantle that's been taken by the film and the tv industry for the very you know for a very long time but that will be our responsibility going forward and as such we have to recognize that and we have to step up to it and what better way to you know to demonstrate uh, you know a, a culture of, of any um uh, society than through a game than through an interactive experience i mean we'll do it better than anybody has in the past and whatever comes after us will do it better than we did but we have an obligation now that we are not just an entertainment platform. There is so much more that we're going to be doing for our various countries and, and the like. So, I mean, that's that's it's a conversation that Paul and I do have, and uh, and it's something we need to grow into fairly quickly, to be honest. 
Uh, we have time for one more question, and it's right up the very back. Um, I have just a pretty one. general question for you guys, pretty simple. Um, how do you guys feel about 3D? Because um, I know that some people feel it's a gimmick, other people think that it's here to stay, so I just wanted to know if you guys see any any way to take advantage of that or where the, where the technology is going. Um, yeah, just I'm, I'm not, I don't really care, I'm not fussed with who answers or if you all have a say, but uh, I just wanted to know general feelings on that sort of side of things. Well, I can't see, like I, I get headaches when I play 3D, um, like I, I can't play the 3DS um, or look at a 3D screen for very long, so I can't, <laughs> for me, it's just like, it just doesn't work. And I know, I know a few people for who it just doesn't work, so um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's a gimmick, but um, I guess it's, you know, depending on how you look at it, literally. So uh, just to forward that question, E3 this year, did you see much of it? Did you see publishers endorsing it? Did you see promotion of it? Um, not really. I didn't I didn't actually see that much um, that much of it. Obviously, Nintendo's still, you know, mm. going gung-ho with the 3DS and, and trying to push it and stuff. But um, And Sony's always obviously been um, in that market first. But um, I, didn't, I didn't see that much kind of as much fuss made over 3D as, for example, last year's E3, where it was kind of like all about 3D. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've played a few titles with 3D, and you, know, you play a racing game, it's good. You can see the curves up ahead more clearly. I've played a sports game, and it's kind of like being in the stadium, but really doesn't add much to the game. So to me, it still feels a little bit gimmicky at the moment. And we don't, when we see a new technology, we don't always step forward into it. I mean, if we did, we'd all be playing with VR goggles that they started introducing back in the 90s. Um, uh, you know, the jury's still out for me on that one. I, I just, um, if I had to bet, I would, if I was a betting man, I am a betting man on these things, I'd say that uh, we will play more 3D games in the future, but whether it becomes the, the kind of accepted only way to play, I'm not sure. I, I'm just thinking there's kind of a, pre, a precedent here as to whether, you know, as a society we prefer um, painting over um, sculpture or sculpture over painting and you think if 3D was that important maybe um, there'd be no more, you know, art would all migrate to to um, to sculpture or something. I, I don't... Because I, I'm, I'm still trying to think if, if we get it right, if, if no one gets a headache and, and it's all wonderful, I wonder if it will still be really that important. Very good. Okay, I would like you all to thank these guys along with me. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.